mention them uh, because renunciation is such an important aspect of the four heavenly messengers. When the Buddha was young, a young prince, um, and when his father uh, made a life for him where he mostly experienced a lot of pleasure, you probably know the story really well, um, but the prince decided at one point that he really wanted to be um, move out of the palaces that his father had kept him in so he wouldn't see anything difficult or uh, something that would bother his mind. And so when he decided to leave the palace, his father had the whole area cleaned up of anybody dead or sick or dying. Uh, still, so much control. Um, and it, they're called the heavenly messengers because a deva actually conjured up in front of the Buddha, the prince at that time, each time he left the palaces, the first time, the second time, the third time, and the fourth time, each time a deva or a heavenly met messenger conjured up an image for the prince to see. Someone old, someone sick, someone dying or dead, actually dead, and then a renunciate, someone more peaceful than peace itself. And each messenger had such a profound effect on the prince in terms of letting go of control, in terms of facing the fear of aging, facing the fear of sickness, facing the fear of death, facing the fear of change. So we're all here facing our fear of change and practicing being renunciates, letting go of control. And the idea behind that is that we do face our fear in this process and that the more we face our fear, the more we're able to let go of control. On retreat, we practice a voluntary uh, renunciation. And although a lot of our friends and family wish us to be having a great vacation here, and some think that's what's happening here, uh, when we're here, we realize that the renunciation isn't so easy and surrendering to a form isn't so easy. And there are times when we feel like renunciation is something that we should do, something imposed from an authority from the outside, something we have to do, something we're depriving ourselves of. Renunciation meaning that there's deprivation going on. And in these cases, renunciation isn't coming out of our understanding or out of our compassion. So there'll be times when we're doing a long retreat and we forget sometimes why it is that we let go of entertainment, why we're not reading, why we're not opening the mail, why we're not writing, uh, why we're not looking up at each other and why there's such emphasis on silence, letting each other be, and more silence, and on sila, not harming each other. So we're not living our ordinary lives so that we can 
put our energy into seeing more clearly, putting our energy into developing more compassion. So the renunciation has the aspect of living more simply. You know how hard it is out in the world in our culture to live simply. Well, here, from the support of the staff, we're living simply so that we can conserve our energy and then build the energy. And that practice is meant to just keep deepening uh, our wisdom and compassion through this simplicity and buildup of energy. Sometimes when the energy builds in a retreat, it's like the experience of blowing up a balloon, but we feel like the balloon. You know, and it just blows up and blows up. And when we're not <coughs> aware that that's happening, uh, we can get afraid of going into the new territory that that much energy will actually allow ourselves to do. So the way that um, we can express that fear of the unknown or the resistance to the unknown is we might start thinking a lot. We might start planning a lot or remembering a lot or fantasizing. Or we might start feeling tempted to look around at people and then start judging. Or we might eat too much. You know those feelings at different times where we just uh, eat more even though we suffer the consequences the next sitting. Or maybe we'll feel um, like reading. Or maybe we'll check the bulletin board again. Or how many times what might we read something on a shampoo label, you know. <laughs> I, each retreat I've ever done, I remember, you know, something that I read over and over, like, you know, even on the roll of toilet paper before you take the wrapper off. You know, how many times <laughs> do we get caught in reading something again and again? And so we often don't know underneath all of the behavior of this kind of distraction is really that maybe we're even just slightly uncomfortable. Maybe it's not so intense or maybe we're really uncomfortable. Uh, but the practice, we're meant to be uncomfortable at times. You know, it's, it's a good thing to get uncomfortable. Uh, so we tend to fill the mind up or the body up, uh, instead of feeling that uncomfortability. And then going through the fear and going deeper. So I'd like to encourage you, if you haven't been doing it as much, to protect your practice and to protect your solitude. And by protecting your own practice and by protecting your own solitude, you actually protect everybody's. And we often forget that too, that when we don't protect our own, we also don't protect others. And the purpose again of, of doing this simplicity of life here is to actually trigger the reactive mind 
one of the purposes of renunciation is actually to see more clearly the wanting mind or to see more clearly the judging mind or the fearful mind or the aversive or irritated mind. And it's very clear when we do walking meditation here that the purpose isn't to get anywhere. You know, and, but yet, it's so hard to remember that. Or when we come in and sit, the purpose isn't to get anywhere or to get any certain experience. It's so hard to remember that it's not about getting anything. So renunciation doesn't mean deprivation. It means simplicity, conserving energy so that we can see more deeply. And it also means purifying our motivation. And so by facing the pain of, of attachment or the wanting mind, by facing the pain of the aversive mind, then we don't have to be as motivated by the wanting mind out of need or out of aversion. When we don't see them clearly, they're invisible hidden forces in our, our life that cause so much suffering for us on the planet. So we're not renouncing generosity. We're not renouncing true love. You know, we're not renouncing wisdom. We're purifying motivation. One time, Sayadaw Upandita told me that it takes a lot of hard work for wisdom to permeate the heart. The longer the retreat, the more we have this opportunity for wisdom to permeate our hearts. And so we really emphasize the continuity of the practice and the renunciation the longer a retreat is so that the fire goes up, so that we see the reactive mind more and more clearly. Sometimes that gets very painful, but that that uncomfortability, again, it's good. Uh, So maybe some people are taking the eight precepts, which in many ways makes more space for um, getting more concentrated and to have more continuity. You know how it is when you walk into the dining room and spend time there. It's like walking into a beehive. You know, it's very intense in there. Continuity, what does that mean? Well, it might mean that say, between breakfast and lunch, we don't take any breaks. Or it might mean that between lunch and tea time, there's no breaks. It's very different for everybody, and I'm trying to be very careful in saying it should be like this for everybody. Each person will have a very unique rhythm, and it's, I'll talk about this later in the retreat, it's good to play to your strength. So when you, when you know, you probably know your rhythms pretty well by now, your energy rhythms, when the energy tends to be high, it's really not helpful to take breaks. It, it's sort of like uh, missing the opportunity. 
And then when the energy is low, sometimes it's really wise to take a break, meaning that we get some space. We might, and that, that's very simple at IMS. <laughs> Taking a break at IMS is not very complicated. <laughs> There's not a lot of choices, like you know, walking up and down supermarket aisles as to what we can do. You know, it's like, shall I get a cup of tea? <laughs> or shall I get a cup of Inca? You know, shall I put honey in it? You know, it's not that complicated. Or shall I go outside? <laughs> Those are about the main two things. <laughs> One of the first times I saw the relationship between the renunciation and then seeing the reactive mind more clearly was a three-month retreat at IMS. And I was sitting here, and it was this time of year because it was quite dark before tea time. And I remember just deciding I was so happy sitting there. And the bell rang, and it was one of the first times I felt like not getting up when the bell rang. And just decided, well, I'll see what happens if I don't go to tea and just sat there, and I was more content than I'd ever been in my life. And I was sitting there, and suddenly the thought came, you know, I wonder what they're having for tea. <laughs> and then, you know, then I started to feel really lonely in the hall, you know, and it, I could just kind of almost hear the sounds in the dining room, and, oh, the wanting mind just started coming up, and I didn't want tea. And I was really happy, but it just, it just like started to get so strong. It was almost unbearable. And it just so happened that um, at that time there was a family living across the street in the house across the street, and they had a dog that barked a lot. And at the time that that wanting mind started to just get so loud and painful, even though I didn't want anything, this dog was barking, and it was like, it was just like the wanting mind felt exactly like the dog barking. You know, there was nothing that the dog was barking at, you know. <laughs> and there was nothing that I wanted, but it was just so hard to just go through that experience and not get lost in some kind of, you know, resistance to it, like, I shouldn't be feeling this way, I don't need anything, you know, try to talk myself out of it or get up and move and go, so I didn't have to feel it. But just to really be interested in it and let that experience come and go, so that I didn't have to be motivated by it. That's painful, you know, that was a really painful experience, but not acting on it and starting to see that it would just, um, my awareness could be free of it, and I didn't have to be tied to it, that was so liberating, it was very joyful. And I started to really understand what the practice was about. So there are times to really sit through that, whether we're sitting and walking, even though we're going through a lot of fear or irritation or wanting. And there are other times when that wouldn't be so skillful. And we really need to be honest with ourselves when that's appropriate and when it isn't. 
I really recommend taking chunks of time to be continuous. You know, it really deepens the practice. Even if we can't do that all day, if you try to do it at certain times, again, like breakfast, uh, like getting up to breakfast, or breakfast to lunch, or 2.15 to tea, you know, just, just remembering that it's like you don't have to create a situation where you can't, um, it's too much of a pressure cooker and you can't bear it. But take, make chunks that you actually can do and see what happens. And then if you can do them after a while, expand them, stretch, play the edge. Why not? What could possibly happen? You know, what, what could possibly happen here to us that would be so horrible if we stretched? When we do back off, remember that we can be generous toward ourselves and others when we do it. We don't have to race around. We can still walk around with care, opening doors, walking in our rooms, remembering that other yogis are sitting there and they're quiet and they can hear us. They can feel that energy. And then in terms of reading and writing in front of people, it's really hard if you're trying not to read and write and other people are reading and writing around us. So if you do have to, do it in your room. And if you have a roommate, wait until the roommate isn't in there. Especially reading mail. You know, it's so hard for the yogis that aren't reading mail to see how much mail is being read here. And I, I'll go into that a little more, but you know, we, we've been talking about the staff and teachers about a way to support everybody's practice here so that the mail isn't such an um, obvious thing that's happening in the day. Uh, so we've changed the hours of mail. So I really want people to listen to this if uh, you do get mail. The mail hours now are 5 a.m. to 6 a.m. in the morning. and 9.30 to 10.30 at night. And this will be posted. And if you get it, please don't read it in the hallway. Not in, not in the, not in the, uh, even the hallway in front of the office. And it's still meant to be for emergencies or important business. You know, if you have a child that really needs to be written to, that's something different. Or you know, the rent is going <laughs> to, you're going to lose your lease. These are things that, or the visa card, you know, whatever. Those are basic things that, of course, maybe need to be done, but there's a lot being done still that doesn't need to be done. And I'm encouraging you to look at this in a way of an IMS culture. It's like IMS has a certain culture here that's a meditation culture. But to remember it's the middle path. It's not the upper middle path. 
You know, it's, it's, it's really meant to be uncomfortable. <laughs> and then to look at what we request, you know, and to know that the staff love to get and re- fulfill genuine needs. And the people, hopefully the people who don't need to hear this won't feel like, oh God, I've been asking for too much, because that often happens. And then the people that are really requesting too much maybe won't hear it. So it's really, to, to really take this to heart and to know that when we have a genuine need, people in the staff, that's what they're here for. And it feels really wonderful to do. But to remember that it's meant to be real, genuine needs, and that the staff can't stretch. <laughs> they're not living in the timeless world. You know, they're living in the world of time, and they have limits. So they, they have that ability to stretch when it's really important. So look at one's, I'd encourage everyone to look at the routines in the day that we have and to see if there's a place where one can renounce a little more or stretch a bit, slow down a bit, play the edge a bit, and notice what happens with that, because there's a reason for it. It's not just um, to be uncomfortable, but it's to work with what happens in the heart when that happens, so that we can use it to be liberated. Notice the fear. What happens if we don't eat that extra bit of food? What is the experience? You know, what is it if I don't check the mail? What, what is the experience? You know, what is it if I don't get a cup of tea and I keep walking? What is it if I tried to slow down all day? One of my teachers, Sayada Upandita, was great for um, always seeing where I could stretch. And there were times where I would just feel like giving up and want to scream. And I just would feel like screaming at him, I'm at my limit, I'm doing the best I can. Uh, and he would always suggest something more when I was feeling that. <laughs> And one time I came in, and we used to just bring in a little teeny report because we only had five minutes, and he'd he'd always ask me to even shorten it every single interview. Uh, so I would edit, 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 and I came in, and he actually looked at my piece of paper. He took it and he said, "You didn't make that A mindfully." I mean, he actually looked at the notes and said. You didn't make that word mindfully, and I just <laughs> I wanted to rip it up and just leave screaming, you know, leave me alone, <laughs> you know, forget it, I can't do this, this is too much, you know, that's how much he wanted, you know, can you even make one letter mindfully, you know, where is it that we don't do that? And where is it that we can stretch? And I, I'm not saying I really liked it when he said that. I had a tantrum for many hours. And then I realized he was right. I didn't make that letter mindfully. I wasn't there at all. <laughs>
<laughs> On retreat, we're in a situation where we, we can appreciate the kindness that's given to us here so much. When we receive a treat from the cooks, or when we receive something that the office has given us that we've needed, you know, it's such an incredible feeling of receiving kindness. Or when somebody leaves something for us, especially when it's anonymous. You know, one of the beauties of the IMS meditation culture is that anonymous giving um, that really reinforces anatta. There's no one who gives and no one who receives. And even when we receive one Hershey's kiss, you know, it's like the kiss can help us live through another step uh, or to live through another breath. I mean, it's so powerful that receiving that care and kindness. And hopefully that the longer we practice, we understand that that support from staff or support from other yogis helps reinforce that we're not separate and that we really do need each other. You know, we need the stars, we need the rocks, we need the chipmunks, we need each other. So showing kindness and receiving kindness really helps keep the balance in practice. This is a quotation from the prison letters of George Jackson who spent 10 years in prison and seven years in solitary and was killed by a prison guard in Attica. And it's about our human need and sensitivity to kindness. The significant feature of the desperate man reveals itself when he meets other desperate men, directly or vicariously, and he experiences his first kindness. Someone to strain with him, to strain to see him as he strains to see himself. Someone to understand. Someone to accept the regard, the love, that desperation forces into hiding. Those feelings that find no expression in desperate times store themselves up in great abundance, ripen, strengthen, and strain the walls of their repository to the utmost. Where the kindred spirit touches this wall, it crumbles. No one responds to kindness. No one is more sensitive to it than the desperate man. That's an aspect of retreat, too. The more we renounce, then the more we can really get what's going on here. You know, that we aren't separate, that we do need each other, and that we do need kindness. Stephen and I have been teaching a young adult retreat here for, I think, at least 10 years now. And we've been trying to make an attempt to reach out to young adults that wouldn't necessarily make it to this culture, this IMS culture. 
so we try to connect with uh, teenagers in the inner city and that have um, extremely low income. So there was one young woman who came um, from a difficult area in New York City and it was a huge adjustment for her. I mean, every interview I had with her, it was about the food. You know, she just couldn't do it. <laughs> I had to keep going out and getting her stuff. Um, <laughs> it was just too different. Um, <laughs> and it was a real stretch for her to be here. You know, it's not just the meditation, but just such a different culture. Uh, and at the end of the retreat, in front of the whole group, she said that the people here really try to care about each other and really try to love each other. And no one where I live, no one where I come from, would believe that such a place even exists. You know, she knew she couldn't talk about her experience to anyone because she knew they wouldn't even be able to get the concept that this kind of place existed. <laughs> you know, that's, that's amazing. We forget that when we're here. You know, how, what's really happening in the cities in this country. We don't have to go so far. This is a quotation from Thornton Burgess. He said, it's a wonderful thing to sweeten the world, which is in jam and needs preserving. <laughs> so how does renunciation sweeten the world? You know, we're actually sweetening the world by practicing this renunciation here seeing aversion or attachment and learning not to be motivated by it is getting out of the way and it's the greatest blessing that one can bring to the world. We're learning to renounce acting on attachment. We're learning to renounce acting on aversion. We're learning to take responsibility for it. We're learning to experience it, see it clearly. And the sweetest blessing is when we aren't motivated by it when we're really not wanting anything. You know, those moments of contentment are the sweetest in the world. So there's more to life than getting our survival needs met. But when we come on retreat, we see a lot of our ways that we search for security whether it's physical or emotional or mental or spiritual. And we get to face the fear of sickness or the fear of shame. Do we really open to the experience of shame or the fear of depression or that feeling that we're not doing something right? Fear of rejection, the fear of not surviving the fear of darkness, the fear of vulnerability, the fear of fear. The experience of being a separate I and fear 
are one and the same. They're inseparable. That search for security, the avoiding the unpleasant and the seeking the pleasant, this is our need for control. And we get to see that when we renounce, when we surrender to the form, in whatever way we do that. And we find that the deepest security is the feeling of being at home in the world. But that feeling of being at home in the world is based on not controlling the pleasant and unpleasant, but letting it go. We can face the experience of fear in our meditation practice when we have insight, sometimes when we have an insight into anicca or dukkha or anatta, there will be fear. So say we get the experience very deeply of how out of control our thinking process is and how quick it is. There can be the experience of fear with that. Or maybe we might have the experience of fear with how much we see that we're missing of life. Or with insight into dukkha or vulnerability that we never know what's going to happen. Sometimes we'll have the fear that comes along with that insight. And this, this really includes the fear of sickness, or the fear of death, or the fear of vulnerability. And then we can have the experience of fear with an insight into anatta. You know, we'll talk about how wonderful it can be to be doing walking meditation, and to have that sense that there's no leg, there's no me, there's just walking, there's just sensation. But fear can occur whenever we believe in any moment that I am my body, or when we believe in any moment that I am my thoughts, or I am my emotions, or I am my heart, or I am my mind. You know, this is what it all boils down to, the belief that I'm my body, I'm my mind, I'm my heart. That's where fear arises out of, is that misperception. It's that minor detail. <laughs> so what is our ex relationship to fear when fear appears in our experience? Hopefully we're starting to learn that we usually get lost in thinking when resistance is happening, or fear is happening, or we try to talk ourselves out of the emotion. Because, you see, fear isn't rational. You know, we'll try to say, you know, I shouldn't be feeling this, rather than, I am feeling this, <laughs> you know. And we'll get lost in planning, or we'll get lost in remembering, or fantasizing, or whatever and see how difficult it is just to drop to the body and to feel the sensations of fear. Usually it requires compassion. 
You know, there's a real relationship between being able to open to letting go of control, fear, and compassion. Because what I noticed, and especially recently I've been noticing that people describe so well how we tend to attack ourselves or attack the fear with cruelty rather than compassion. You know, so even if we have to back off and take some space if something's coming up, it's so hard to do that without hating ourselves or judging ourselves and picking up a whip. You know, it's, it's so ironic that the place where we're the most vulnerable fear, that we tend to hurt ourselves the most there. And actually what we need to do at that place, it's like picking up an infant that's crying and just holding it. You know, usually we just need a kind of basic reassurance at that point. And compassion, we care about the pain and hold ourselves. And then often, then we can experience the fear with mindfulness. So try to have an interest in this process. How do I relate to fear? How do you relate to the experience of fear? What do you do with it? You know, what, what do you do with it when it's intense? What do you do with it when it's subtle or mild? How do we avoid it? And then if we can't stop hurting ourselves or judging ourselves, it's good to stop and take a break, go out and look at the chipmunks, <laughs> feed the chickadees, you know, go to the pond, have a tea, or whatever. It's like, stop. Stop hurting yourself. And start again with tenderness. It's possible to relate to the experience of fear like we would the sound of a bird. You know, that's equanimity. No need to get rid of it. No need to attack it. Just let it come and go by itself. It's not mine. It's just fear. There's a beautiful um, old statue of Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of Compassion in the upper walking room. And it's said of her that she can hear all the cries in the whole universe. She can hear all the cries of pain and all the cries of joy. So it's not just pain that she can hear, but she can hear the joy, the tears of joy. So one can guess that she can really listen pretty well, if she can hear them all. Uh, and for me, having a sense of that, you know, I really learned to listen to the fear. Really listen to it, like I would listen to a beautiful sound. Like I would listen to all the cries in the world, or all the joy in the world. It's like learning how to be Kuan Yin for yourself, the Bodhisattva of compassion for yourself. And the more you learn how to do it for yourself, the more you can learn to listen to it for others and respond well. 
Aiken Roshi says, what we need is lightness. What we need is insecurity. What we need is all sounds to enter. Can you relate to needing insecurity? Do we need insecurity? Can we need insecurity? The experience of fear usually presents us with the two choices of either shutting down or feeling what's there. You know, there's really only two possibilities there, and both are okay. And the more we know that when we're opening, that that's what we're doing, and the more we know when we close, that that's what we're doing, uh, the more okay it all is, and the more our system will trust ourselves. If we feel we always have to open and pull the petals open, the less our system will trust us. The more our system knows we're really going to listen, then the more trust and the more we open. So listening is a real important aspect of this. Listening, gentleness. So I have two stories of different ways to work with fear. One by really going for it, and one backing off. And one is a story of a man that went to Africa to study elephants. And he was going along with a guide, and they came across um, a young male lion with two lionesses. And as they um, got closer to them, they could see these lions kind of going up to attack a herd of cattle. And there was a young man there who was trying to protect the cattle, but hadn't quite seen these beings coming. So he said to his guide, we'd better help that man. And the guide said, no, he knows the lions are there. This is for him to do. He would not want us to interfere. So the herder stood staring straight at the cats and slowly raised his spear to a throwing position without once moving his gaze away. From a distance, other herders who had noticed the man's posture drew nearer to watch the standoff, but not too near. They, too, thought that this was for him to do. This was what he had been trained for. Each time the male lion growled and poised itself, the man would shake his spear and spread his stance a bit. Each time the cat was still, the man was still matching the animal's steadfast golden stare. The standoff continued for a quarter an hour. At last, the lions crouched away into a line of scrub. Had the herder communicated the slightest hesitation or fear, I think they would have gone for his cattle in a flash. If these youngish lions hadn't known much about the Maasai when they started, they knew something now and it might help them survive among people in the future. Sometimes I really encourage you to do that with the fear. Really, really go deeply into the experience. 
then there's backing off, shutting down. A lot of you have heard my um, stories of going out into the Pacific Ocean, which uh, is a challenge for me in terms of working with fear. And Steve grew up, he was born in Honolulu, he actually used to surf 20-foot waves, and in Hawaii they underestimate waves. I mean, you know, when it's a 10-foot wave, they say it's a 5-foot wave. You know, so when they say it's a 20-foot wave, it's usually, it looks like a 30-foot wave to me. Uh, and I grew up on Lake Katituit, which doesn't have any waves. <laughs> um, so this year, <laughs> this man was uh, leading this some conference in Hawaii that he invited us to teach some meditation at, and he had a little bit of time to come out to visit us, and he really wanted Steve to take him out kayaking, and he insisted that I go. And so I said, <laughs> okay, <laughs> laughing. And so, of course, Steve started out toward the waves. So I accompanied them, you know, because there's a big, long reef in Hawaii, which is why it's such good surfing. You're not going right into the sand, but you're way out in the ocean where the reef break is. You know, so I paddled out, you know, third. I was behind the two of them. Uh, so we got to the reef, and I stopped, you know. I started just back paddling. And this guy turned around and he looked at me just totally shocked and he said, Michelle, I thought that... <laughs> aren't you supposed to just note fear and keep paddling? <laughs> and I said, I note fear and I back paddle. <laughs> And I felt really good about it. <laughs> it's really good to know our limits. You know, and I think that with fear, one can learn about anatta more than anything, because it's really not the separate I that determines the process of opening to it. And it usually requires understanding limits. And I used to always try to take a too big a dose of the fear and then get so scared and then afraid of the fear. I would feel weakened by the experience rather than strengthened by it. And over time I started to see that relationship between having some energy. If you have some energy, it usually helps the mindfulness. And then if one has the interest in the experience rather than pushing oneself into it, and we take the right dose, we'll feel strengthened by the experience, rather than more terrified of it. And this is the relationship between surrendering to the form, surrendering to the renunciation, and really being like that herder with the lions at times. When you have the energy, do that, and you'll feel strengthened by it. Being strengthened by it means that we're more tolerant of the experience of fear. So the more tolerant we are, the less afraid we are of the experience, and we're less and less afraid of fear.
ultimately, we're afraid of death. You know, each moment there's birth and death, birth and death, the birth and death of consciousness, the known, the unknown, appearing, disappearing, knowing, not knowing, knowing, not knowing, knowing, not knowing. So this practice is really about facing that change, facing death, and facing the fear of the change, and facing that fear of the unknown, facing the fear of the death. It takes a lot of courage um, and energy to do this. You know, that's why we have the renunciation, and that's why um, we have a long retreat, so we get a deeper and deeper um, wisdom that we bring to the birth and death of a moment, the birth and death of known unknown. I would really encourage you to start trusting the place in you that can really drop into that unknown and soften into the unknown and play that edge, play that edge, whatever that edge is for you. It's the beauty it's the beauty and the um, all of the wisdom and compassion come out of that. So freedom isn't getting rid of fear. It's learning to work with it skillfully. And it's learning how to relate to fear with with compassion, with understanding, and trust. So I wanted to read part of a poem by Joy Harjo called I Give You Back. I release you, my beautiful and terrible fear. I release you. You were my beloved and hated twin, but now I don't know you as myself. I release you, fear, so you can no longer keep me naked and frozen in the winter or smothered under blankets in the summer. I release you. I release you. I release you. I release you. I am not afraid to be angry. I am not afraid to rejoice. I am not afraid to be black. I am not afraid to be white. I am not afraid to be hungry. I am not afraid to be full. I am not afraid to be hated. I am not afraid to be loved, to be loved, to be loved, fear. I take myself back, fear. You are, no, you are not my shadow any longer. I won't hold you in my hands. You can't live in my eyes, my ears, my voice, my belly, or in my heart, my heart, my heart, my heart. But come here, fear. I am alive, and you are so afraid of dying. Let's sit for a minute. 
So come here, fear. I am alive, and you are so afraid of dying. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.